Welcome to the FMAN podcast, the podcast which focuses on the person doing the trading, the trader, and their interaction with the market, the impact the market has on them, and the skills, actions, and activities needed to navigate their way through the terrain of the financial markets. Today we are taking a slightly different turn. We have had so many requests from listeners who themselves categorise themselves as traders of regular markets, but who have asked if we could help illuminate the mysterious worlds of DeFi or decentralised finance and its main subcomponent, crypto. Some of these people do trade the main cryptocurrencies, but even then many have said they do not possess an in-depth understanding of DeFi and its complexities beyond the surface level. Indeed, we recently polled our followers on Twitter and we know from surveys that our audience are reasonably sophisticated in terms of market knowledge. But even then, those who admitted to having a reasonably strong understanding of DeFi were less than 20%. Now, we recognise there is an age barrier here. And we feel that the more you are knowledgeable about the market you were baptised into, the harder it is to become open to new developments which are part of the constant evolution of markets and which always start as new fads dismissed as such by older participants, but which then gain wider acceptance and then eventually become new trends. Hence, many people, say younger than 30 and perhaps even closer to their mid-20s, for them the world of DeFi decentralized finance is their world and they can talk the language of it and they understand it. There are some people in their 30s who are clued up about this but to most DeFi and the world of cryptocurrencies is something of a mystery and then you get into well, I would broadly say the over 40s and for them DeFi is largely an alien world difficult to navigate let alone to even comprehend. Now, in this episode of the Alphamine podcast, my co-host Mark Randall and myself, Stephen Goldstein, who are both far older than is healthy to admit and some way past the wrong side of 50, are facilitating a panel of DeFi and crypto experts who we feel span the ages and bridge the gap between conventional trading and regular financial markets in order to try and help you, our audience, start to make some sort of sense of the DeFi revolution. And we don't know how far we managed to achieve this. We do feel we had some success and we, we asked a lot of questions which tried to clear up some of our own confusion. And we certainly came away with a little bit more clarity, but I'm also mindful that we probably came away with far more questions as we moved into the Maya that really is the early days of decentralised finance. We would like to thank our panel of experts, Glenn Goodman, Paul Gordon and Matt Aaron for giving up their time to be with us and to provide some fascinating talking points, which hopefully will help you, the audience, gain some greater understanding of this, I suppose you could say, murky world of decentralised finance. Now, before we start, we would like to thank our podcast sponsor, the Society of Technical Analysts, the STA. The STA provide world-beating education on price action analysis techniques and have been the go-to place for pro traders and investors to learn high-level technical analysis skills for over five decades. Now, do check out their brilliant home study course, which is based off their technical analysis diploma taught annually at the London School of Economics. Listeners to the Alphamine podcast can obtain a discount on the STA home study course. To know more about this, visit alpha-mind.net. Now, on with this week's podcast. Well, welcome to this week's uh, Alpha Mind podcast. DeFi, decentralized finance, 
NFTs, cryptos, mining, blockchain, Web 3.0, friendly phrases that many of us sort of scratch our heads over and kind of just don't know too much about. And certainly conversations that Steve and I had, there's guess we know some surface stuff, but the deep stuff and what's going on and the whys and the, what are the trends and what are the biases and you know where's where's it moving? Where's it come from? We just do not know the story there. And we just thought it would be so cool to bring together three people that have evolved with this space and have created thought leadership in this space. And we have them together today. Um, we have Glenn Goodman, we have Paul Gordon, we, and we have Matt Aaron. And um, I, w- I want them all to just take a little bit of time and perhaps starting with Glenn, if you can just... Um, Introduce yourself. It's good, good for you to be here. Thanks for your time. Yeah, good to be here. Um, yeah, I used to be a TV reporter and presenter for the BBC and for ITV News. Uh, I was mainly a business correspondent uh, for many years. So that that kind of gave me my intro into trading, started trading, got into crypto, which was just kind of burgeoning, uh, or Bitcoin was at that time. Most, you know, hardly any other cryptos even existed. Uh, but I started trading Bitcoin. And then when, as other cryptos came along, I got even more interested in the technology because Ethereum really excited me, the possibilities that went along with that. And of course, we've seen Ethereum develop massively since then and many, many apps um, on the back of Ethereum. And um, oh, yeah, then I wrote uh, a book, The Crypto Trader, that uh, Harriman House published in 2019. And and last year, during the 2021 crypto boom, it became a bestseller. It's, uh, it's an introduction to crypto but mainly to crypto trading great for you to be on this show this is just going to be so interesting given your, your background and paul perhaps just moving on to yourself tell us a bit about yourself thanks guys thanks for inviting me back uh, my background um prior to falling down the crypto rabbit hole uh, was in derivatives markets for 20 years i was a derivative trader and broker uh, formerly an open outcry trader in the pits on the life market in the 90s um, and then transitioned to spring-based trading uh, once that all closed down um, so it was interesting to see that transition uh, in terms of generations of technology or say technology from open outcry and trading to you know, new technologies coming in and uh, disrupting markets, uh, but being natural evolutions, etc. So that was, I guess, um, in terms of when I came across Bitcoin, um, uh, having seen that process in the past, I guess that's one of the things which sort of uh, grabbed my attention, knowing that you know, markets consistently or constantly evolve over time. Um, this, I guess, was um, looking at something beyond that. And the money also itself evolves over time and itself is a technology. Uh, so like many people, when I first came across the subject, I was a little bit confused at first, put the time and effort in to understand it. You know, by early 2012, I was pretty gripped and uh, my own mind was full of all sorts of ideas of business opportunities, commercial opportunities. Um, trading futures was becoming ever more difficult, especially trading short-term interest rates. Um, so I decided it was time to leave that world behind and throw myself into um, these new technologies or start looking more closely at them. Um, I turned up at the first ever Bitcoin meetup in London in a pub in Paddington in September in 2012, where four or five of us sat around over a few beers discussing and geeking out, um, talking about Bitcoin. Um, as Glenn mentioned, it was really the only thing you could talk about then in terms of crypto, because that's pretty much all there was. Um, and as we started attracting more members to that pub and we outgrew the pub, it was myself that 
took it under my wing to start organizing more formal networking events, uh, which we did. We renamed ourselves CoinScrum uh, and for the next eight, nine years, um, hosted regular monthly events, uh, presenting new ideas and new technologies as they started to come through. Fantastic. Thanks for that. Matt, over to you. Yeah, so I, I guess um, unlike Paul and Glenn, I am not a, a, a professional trader. Um, I, I've done a number of things. I you know, started out doing a bunch of web dev stuff and then um, stuff in the natural food space. And then I kind of got roped into uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum in 2017, did a variety of things. But a uh, year and a half ago, um, I got into DeFi analytics and launched an on-chain DAO, uh, just uh, you know, a web analytics platform uh, tracking a number of these different DeFi primitives and have just been heads deep in it. And so I actually kind of became a trader by action. I was just very interested in crypto, especially the rebellion, uh, to be honest, against the banks. Um, so kind of, um, I won't say diabolical, but like really, you know, we're not a fan of 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 the banking system and, and some of its, its structural issues. Um, not that there aren't good things about it too. And um, yeah, now I'm doing this full time and trying to keep up with it the best I can. Cause I think Paul and Glenn can second me that there we're at the point now and we've probably been there for six months where it's literally impossible to keep up with everything going on. No, very good. Thanks. And uh, I, I guess I want to pick on something that Glenn said actually, and, and, and your, your, your initial um, chat there. You said you said you started off with Bitcoin, but then you said that something excited you about Ethereum to want to switch to trading Ethereum. Now, I guess all these things were the same, but but what was it about Ethereum that excited you to want to start trading that? Well, Ethereum is like a computer operating system in some ways, and uh, people used to call it the world computer a lot. I don't know if people call it that much anymore, but it still kind of is. Um, the point about Ethereum was it has its own programming language. Uh, apps can be built on top of it, or dApps, as they're sometimes called. And in fact, actually, almost the entire DeFi financial system you know, most of it is built on Ethereum, though there are other level one, um, uh, layer one blockchains that are um, uh, being used now more and more uh, for DeFi apps. But nonetheless, Ethereum still remains the main player. And, and you know, it just goes to show there's so much that you could do with Ethereum. But actually, um, the, the DeFi industry has developed to such a degree now and sort of taken on a life of its own, as I'm sure Matt will explain uh, in great depth, that um, I just while, while you were talking, it made me think of a question that I have for Paul. Do you mind if I ask Paul a question? Because I didn't realize he used to be a derivatives trader. Here's the thing that worries me the most about DeFi. And I'm going to give you an example of how complicated it is right here is a, a real life message that was sent from one user to another user i mean i've just taken this as an example there are examples like this proliferate everywhere but this is just one example to give you an idea he says to the other user i recommend you buy phantom 
lock it for two or three months on the F wallet, get around 6% yield on your Phantom. And at the same place, you can mint SFTM equivalent to the amount that you staked. Then you should lock those SFTM as collateral to borrow FUSD. You can get around 33% of your collateral value. Use those FUSD to buy WFTM on F swap. <laughs> Once you've got your WFTM transfer them to Yearn, lock them in their vaults. They give you good APY. Then with the deposit receipt, they'll give you YVFTM. Bring those to Abracadabra. Lock them as collateral. Take a loan, but don't risk too much. I'll only take 30%. Then bring those to buy tarot token on Spirit Swap. Go to tarot and lend your tarot single-sided for 120%. That's that's a typical com well I say conversation. It's just that's just one one bit of the dialogue. You know, it's like this is how complicated it is. And my question for Paul is this reminds me a hell of a lot of a book that I read called Traders, Guns and Money, um, back in by Satyajit Das back in 2006, I think it was, before the great financial crash. And it was warning. He was a derivative, he worked in derivatives. I think it was derivatives, either trader, salesperson. And he basically um, was terrified of the complexity that was being created with collateralized mortgage obligations, collateralized debt obligations, um, credit default swaps in particular were really scaring him at the time, though, as it turned out, they weren't the, the main culprit when, when the actual crash happened. But you get the idea, Paul. It's like it's not dissimilar to what I was reading in that book back then. Does that <laughs> worry you? Um, yes. In an answer. There you go. Um, no, it, uh, it does. I do think as... Uh, fascinating as this new world is um, that's emerged seemingly out of nowhere um, uh, over the last few years. Yes, there's lots of potential. Yes, it's still very early days. Yes, there's money being made right now. But it does concern me that it's virtually impossible to quantify the risks. And I think we're probably still seeing that in uh, you know traditional markets as well. I mean, efforts were made after uh, the 2008 crisis and then Standards were probably even then since being brought down in, in certain um, areas. But I did, look, it, it does concern me. Two things concern me um, that seem to be you know, conveniently overlooked regularly. Um, we talked about Ethereum. You talked about you know, what was interesting about Ethereum versus Bitcoin is the fact that it's this, the idea is was that it becomes this world computer. Anyone can permissionlessly come along, decide to write software effectively and to publish that software and this is trading related software that anyone can interact with you don't need to onboard with a broker or an exchange or a trading venue you don't need your traditional custodians or clearing houses these have all been programmed through code onto these open decentralized networks so that's a huge innovation hugely interesting that's great, but it doesn't come without risks. And, we, and we've seen that already. You know, my main concern, much to my distinct cost way back um, in 2014, when the ideas around Ethereum were first published, was, you know, their argument was that, you know, Bitcoin, and we do need to remember Bitcoin is programmable as well. I mean, Bitcoin, um, one of its, you know, uh, the, the key features, which was promised in its early days that, you know, bringing about this idea of programmable money. Um, Bitcoin has a very, very kind of concise, small scripting language, which has very simple outcomes. And those contracts, if people have heard the term smart contract, especially applied to Ethereum, a smart contract is essentially a, a snippet of a conditional code. It's not necessarily a snippet, it could be a long piece of code, but it's setting out some conditions, which if this happens, then do this. 
Um, and a smart contract can act as a digital wallet so it can hold funds, digital assets on behalf of those interacting with it. So it effectively acts like the escrow agent. And if a certain condition happens, it will decide who to settle with and who to send funds to. So that's essentially what's going on under the hood of DeFi. Um, now, Ethereum came along and said, you know, Bitcoin is way too limited to program. You know, development happens at a snail's pace. We want to move quick. We want to be able to do anything possible. So they came along and said, well, our smart contract, our programming language, unlike Bitcoin, will allow you to do anything. That is if you're writing a program or a piece of software for, to run on your laptop which is great in principle. Unfortunately, what that opens up is a huge attack surface. So that means you make one mistake in that smart contract, which lives in the public domain. Any hacker out there can come along and review it, and they do regularly. And from time to time, they're gonna find an error in that code, in that smart contract. Um, and that can be compromised and hacked. Last year alone, we saw over a billion and a half dollars worth of hacks in DeFi. Um, and it's difficult to see how that's going to kind of, um, you know, disappear over time. I think that's a risk that's always going to be there. On top of that, um, you know, just back to the point about does this, how this compares with uh, uh, traditional markets in the past, um, you know, there's, we have a whole network of stable coins which are supporting this ecosystem. They could be backed by cash in a bank, operated by a company, some of them are programmatic stable coins, which are really, you know, um, you know they, they, they don't actually have a cash backing. They have margin backing. Um, all fascinating, but these all pile risk upon risk, and we don't know where the break points are. So it does concern me that at some point things are going to stop working. Matt, any thoughts about anything that Glenn, Glenn put out there? Yeah, I actually have um, – uh, my only, I actually, I have no concern to what they just said. I, I feel like everything they said, I, I agree that the the challenges of it, but I think that's just going to be solved by by free markets, um, meaning that like here, I'll, I'll share my, uh, I'll share my screen right now. So, um, just like in the traditional markets, I assume after two thousand eight, people were were taking less risk with like these these CDPs. The same thing is is happening, and it's eventually going to happen. Um, with DeFi, meaning that like, I don't know, I know, I know the guys from DeFi safety and they, they do a lot of auditing and check for certain things with, with, uh, with these protocols. So what, what I, the way I look at it is, um, that, uh, like, like balancers never had a hack. Ave, uh, had, had some bugs that have been disclosed, but I think that, um, eventually I don't think it's going to blow up and go to zero. Um, like one of the guests said, I think it's more like, okay, people will, will start to factor in. Uh, when they see these yields that it doesn't come with the risk. And I think just people get more mature and learn um, over time. The only risk I see is maybe it being slowed down by by regulators who are trying to protect the interest of, of the banks. I quite like what Matt's saying, actually. Um, I have to say, and, and also Paul's answer to my question as well. Um, what I like about what Matt's saying is when he said free markets will sort it out. And that, you know, is that everybody who's in DeFi either does know or certainly should know that there are enormous risks involved. You don't get ridiculous, um, you know, yield. You don't get like a hundred percent return on your money anywhere else in the world. As long as it would be nice if regulators in different countries would just, when it comes to DeFi, if they would just sm smash massive risk warnings, 
Well, that's all they need to do. Just warn all the ordinary people who are getting involved. This is incredibly risky. And that's why you get such huge yield. Because, Well, maybe not even incredibly risky, but it's very risky. You never know when the whole house of cards comes collapsing. But the thing is, right, a couple of weeks ago when we were planning this uh, podcast recording and it was postponed, I was getting ready to say I'm really worried about the fact that uh, there's this risk and that risk and the other risk from DeFi. And one risk in particular that I was worried about a few weeks ago was the one whereby if somebody takes uh, somebody or a group of people take control of a particular protocol, uh, you know, they're able to manipulate the actual code and rewind trades that have already happened. That's one out of many, many ways that in theory people can um, manipulate the market in DeFi. You know, if they take control of the entire protocol, they can undo trades that have already happened and effectively take people's money. But then... Since then, I say I say I thought this a few weeks ago. Since then, we've had the London Metal Exchange basically do that in the real world in a regulated environment. I mean, I don't know. I mean, Mark and Steve, you will be the experts on this, so I can't wait to hear your view. But to me, it's just like unbelievably appalling. It's one thing to stop a market when it's getting out of control and say, let's let's cease trading for a few days. That's something they like to do. And sometimes you could argue that that's a bit dodgy when they do that and sometimes not. But in this case, they've act they're actually cancelling trades contracts that existed between buyers and sellers because they want to protect the people who are uh, their members, I think. I think that was the interview I saw. I hope I'm not misquoting him, but the uh, the guy in charge of the London Metal Exchange, I think he said, you know, we need an orderly market and to look after our members. I think that was what he said to Bloomberg. And it's like, what do you mean to look after your members? That's not the point. It's supposed to be a free market. It's interesting because I was waiting to jump in there. Is that right, Mark? Did you have something you wanted to say at all? No, I'm, I'm fine. I'm just, I'll, I'll save it up to the end. Just carry on. I don't want to stop the flow. I'll be honest, right? I'd love to answer that question, that point there you said, Glenn, but there was something happening to me before that, which I just want to share with the three of you. And it was kind of like dinosaur tunes out. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the conversation was going between the three of you, which really kind of emphasizes a lot of my point with crypto and part of the reason for this podcast. I'm quite happy to talk about me being a trading tyrannosaurus rex okay and i'm sure mark is probably maybe more of a brontosaurus i can see your hands up there matt i'll come back to you in a minute. vegetarian dinosaur <laughs> yes. and, and you know that is i started in the mid 1980s and, and i worked with a lot of the dinosaurs in those days who were going like these derivative things they're never going to work i don't get it not i'm not even going to bother going there you know very simple derivatives things as simple as you know, the very early basic swaps and fras and, you know, even futures. Um, and now I feel a bit like one of those when I hear, you know, and, and yet in one way it's very different. And in other words, it's very, it's the same, Glenn, you made a point there, you know, what the LME did last week. Mm. And, and you know, it's, it almost brings me to that part of the question of this, you know, what the LME did was a clear, for me, demonstration of this is house rules and you're breaking house rules, okay? We can very go back to everything in trading goes back to almost it being a casino. I know that is a, a, a rather disparaging equation, um, comparison, 
Well, it is. You, you've got the house and you've got the players. The banks historically have been the house. The central banks have been the house. Um, the exchanges have been the house. And the exchanges are there to provide a market, but they also have to look after their members. And they sometimes... They're not, they're not sorry to interrupt, but they're not supposed to favour certain clients over certain others, are they? Surely. Well, they're not supposed to, but the casinos are not supposed to break your fingers when you suddenly start finding a system that beats them. But they do. <laughs> okay. They'll break I your mean, fingers. that's... Yeah, well, evil, I mean, that's... Straight to the rules, but you suddenly find the way around the rules, you'll suddenly be taken downstairs to the car park and, you know you'll get a warning that might end up with your legs being broken, your fingers being broken, or much worse, okay? That's the guy from uh, LME seemed much posher and nicer than, you know, the, the finger-breaking type. <laughs> yeah. well, that's basically what they're doing, right? They're using, yeah, we, we, we had, um, you know, it's, it's one of my favourite stories or, you know, quite sad stories, you know, the, the guy who, um, the, 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 I, I can't, the, the flash crash, the guy who got the blame for the flash crash? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 2011. That's, that's an example of the exchanges coming down upon someone else who was beating them. Okay, for me, that was just them turning around and saying, okay, you found a way to beat us. We're changing the rules. And, you know, I, I don't think he was actually the orchestrator of the flash crash um, in the end, but he found a way around beating them. Not temporarily, and they don't like it. And was he the right. guy who was doing order spoofing? Was that? Is that yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. that's, that's interesting because you know we're coming back to DeFi. It's um, because it's basically a playground for people to invent new kinds of derivatives and new kinds of ways to trade, um, and it's unregulated. This means that it's open to all the traditional ways of manipulating exactly. markets, including order spoofing. Um, yeah. And then people have to try and write the smart contracts in such a way that to try and prevent these things from happening. But it's obviously all a bit experimental and all a bit hit and miss. There's a hell of a lot of uh, traditional, <laughs> you know, the kind of things Jesse Livermore used to write about mm. uh, going yeah. on, that, that kind of manipulation. Which is which is worrying, but as I say, you know, you can attempt to get round it by writing the code in such a way. But there's a, there's always a house. There's always people that have to make the market, um, and there's people who they're playing against, who are the players. They're turning up at the casino. But and with I, DeFi, you don't have the you don't have the casino owners. In some cases, I mean, sometimes, I mean, Matt, you know more about this than anyone else. But some some protocols are more centralized than others, right? Some of them are more controlled by their software developers, and some of them, like Uniswap, are, are almost uncontrolled. Well, almost uncontrolled, I suppose, or relatively speaking, like they're, they're, there's there's a, a distinct lack of middlemen in some of these, like Uniswap. Yeah. So a couple of things. I, I just want to say, uh, and I, I appreciate your point there, Glenn. I'll address that second. But first, Steve, uh, yeah, I, we definitely do not want to start speaking in in concepts that can get the reader lost because that's when they, you know, put down their podcast and, and do something else. We want to make sure people listen to this. So I think perhaps I'd suggest that we start using um, uh, metaphors because um, that helped me a lot because <laughs> I'm still learning about all this stuff. Like you can spend, you can never learn all this stuff. So I think like a great metaphor is um, you talked about like systemic risk. Um, let's think of it this way. Let's pretend like, you know, you have the Chicago, like commodities exchange, the New York stock exchange, London stock exchange. Everyone listening knows that we could almost pretend like each blockchain is a different one of these exchanges. And they're all experimenting with these new, more open and more democratic. Um, at the same time, it's hyper capitalist and that like 
code is law. So if you can figure out ways to manipulate things, you can do that. There's no insider trading rules. So it's very like hyper-capitalist. Um, but the great thing about this, like this is here to stay, but maybe let's say Ethereum, if it were the um, London Stock Exchange um, or um, maybe Solana is the Myanmar Stock Exchange. You know, one of these exchanges, aka blockchains could die in this development. Um, and so I thought that might be a not horrible metaphor to like maybe kind of uh, frame these things um that's interesting isn't it i mean but i mean an exchange is almost i suppose you could say in a way a, a cryptocurrency or I, I don't even know if that's the right phrase yeah because it's like currency yeah. distorts everything doesn't it yeah unless you're like a 190 iq genius i mean i don't think anyone that's not familiar with DeFi can listen to one podcast and like understand how it works so i think it's it's, it's the goal of like getting these metaphors i think it might be the easiest way like the storytelling to like at least get people interested and then we can send like perhaps like additional reading if people want to go further down the uh proverbial rabbit hole yeah yeah and, and that's why it's interesting getting sort of three individuals who, who have had i think mark used the term an evolution um into this so, so you you come in as a matt as someone who almost went straight into this world um paul you've come from the professional world and have been on that side you've worked in the exchanges you work for the back you work for the house and you've been the player trying to take on the house <laughs> yeah i guess so look there, there are similarities and i think you know evolution is is the correct word to use and we as i said we're still in the very early days We've got to always say to people, you have to remember, because everyone, like the, the regulators are often mostly seen as the bad guys. And look, some of them, you know, are questionable in terms of their understanding and their knowledge, especially with new markets, new technologies. And when they start coming in and trying to kind of apply rules over things that they're not really um, too well versed in. So that's always going to be a challenge. But also, um, you know, I think Glenn mentioned uh, Jesse Livermore and uh, stories from 100 years ago. None of these are new problems. You know, markets are driven by humans at the end of the day. Most humans act honestly or want to act honestly, but there's always some that don't. And they'll see an opportunity to take advantage, to scam others. And it's no different in any markets. And the reasons we've got such heavy regulation is because those bad, or those bad actors have always been there. And they, the regulators have had to step in to try and protect everyone else and create orderly markets. And the exchanges when they were mostly membership based and didn't have, you know, outside shareholders to try and create profits for. Again, you know, that was a big change in my mind. Uh, that dynamic was a huge change, which meant that exchanges might have, um, where they uh, you know, might have been there to um, independently maintain order and nothing else. Once they had a profit motive in place and shareholders to answer to, then they maybe started compromising some of their own rules and their own motives uh, for their own profit. And I think that was a big problem. But look, we've seen all these changes. You know, if this industry, if this new industry can also bring about the protections for the majority of people using these systems, and I'm not saying they can't over time, but people will always try and cheat. And ultimately, if a lot of retail, especially retail traders, are constantly being cheated, that's when regulators get more upset, they come in and start trying to apply rules, as I said, often in a manner which isn't fit for the actual technology. So I think these are the things that we need to think about and be careful about. And we are seeing certain regulators doing a better job at engaging with the industry, allowing the innovation to happen, but making it clear where the lines are and the lines are drawn to make sure things don't get out of hand. So I think we're just at that stage now. And I think hopefully, you know, the industry 
if it applies this technology as it can be, even if certain things haven't necessarily been developed yet, over time, we can end up with a much better system than we currently do have and a fairer system. Um, but it, it's for the industry to prove that it can do that. Well, yeah. It's interesting. I'm oh, sorry. I was just going to say it's interesting what Paul's saying there because, because of course, it, everything kind of goes in cycles over time, over history. And, um, and actually, ironically, cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin in particular, are a direct result of the regulatory capture that happened in the traditional finance industry, the traditional banking. So you had a crazy world, the Jesse Livermore world, with bucket shops where people would trade and all the rest of it and lots of all kinds of shenanigans going on. And then you get massive regulation coming in, which works to a certain degree for decades and decades. But then you get to a situation where the regulators are arguably to some degree in some countries in the pockets of certain industry players like the big banks and they're they're too much kind of in league with them and so you get a situation like 2008 where the whole thing collapses and it's the banks that get saved and the ordinary people who get shafted and everybody gets really angry and then satoshi nakamoto uh invents bitcoin directly because he's so angry about that and about that regulatory capture. And then you get the entire DeFi industry growing out of that, like we have now, which is, you know, it's it's back to the kind of Wild West days in terms of uh, finance, in terms of coming up with unique products, and in terms of ordinary people getting scammed sometimes because they're trusting anonymous individuals who invent these protocols. Quite often they're anonymous. You don't even know who they are. And you get, you know, Matt will be very familiar with the term rug pull because you get these in the world of DeFi where so, uh, somebody sets up a new protocol, a new system, gets people, or not even in DeFi, even in uh, um, tra- not traditional crypto, I should call it. But, you know, you get this where somebody sets something up, sets up a new thing, asks for investors, asks for people to lend their money. People pour in tons of money and then it and then the guy steals the money. And if one goes, I can't believe they stole the money. And you go, but you didn't even know who the guy was. Like, of course, they stole your money. Like, they're the, why wouldn't they? They're like they're an anonymous person. They're clearly, you know, that's the thing is people can't tell. It's impossible to tell the difference these days between thieves and people who want to stay anonymous because they like their privacy and they're just a little bit shy. That's that's kind of the split that you have because some of the most useful people in the world of crypto and DeFi are just very shy private people who hide behind avatars. But then some of them are thieves. And it's and quite often it's impossible to tell which one's which until it's too late. Tread with some care there. Crumbs. I think, I think if... Um... Yeah, if if you look back into the the way financial markets evolved, the things that that were 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 clearly clearly wrong. And I think from having been a pit trader myself, market supervision just didn't have a clue what it was, you know, what what it was looking at. Yeah, you know, when you had out trade on the floor, you know, it was a case of pot luck whether you, they were going to be on your side or or whatever. Um, but actually, going through time, you know, through the banking challenges. They never really ever got it right, you know. And these these were people. They started to get it right when when they started when you started to see people that were heads of trading start to become market supervisors. So you start to get people that have actually done done it. But people that have just been put there as almost like a there's your job. You've got to supervise this stuff going on. And I think I, I get a sense that crypto might be kind of in that space. The the exchanges are trying to put some degree of shape around it. But of course, um, they are 
answerable to the members and the risk of all the, the collective margin they have. Um, so, so I think one of the biggest challenges the exchanges have is how they actually keep track of a fully marginalized market when you've got 12, 15% daily price moves and then, you know, intraday margin calls and things like that. You know, when, when we trade, you know, you, you saw stock markets doing 3 to 5% on a daily basis and you thought that was a lot. You thought that was a hell of a lot of it went day after day. Now you're seeing in this world, you know, 15% up one day, 12% down the next, 8% up the next day. And I guess the question is, well, how on earth do you regulate that? I mean, because regulation, how do you put control around that? Very difficult. Yeah, oh. can I add a, a – um, or go ahead, Paul. Go ahead, sorry. No, no, no. Please go ahead, Matt. Okay, so uh, I just said a couple of things. So one, here's a very relevant fact. The last time – SEC made a, a ruling. I may be getting the, the term wrong, but like an actual ruling or a rule for cryptocurrencies was either 2013 or 2014. But the point was it was before uh, Ethereum and DeFi were even invented. And it is an incredibly um, difficult task for the regular. I just want to acknowledge that. It's, it's so complex. And, and so it's a very hard thing for them to get right. And the, with Mark adding the context that they've never really got it right for traditional financial markets, which it, uh, I think I'm the only person here without a background, I, I find pretty complex as well. I don't think it's that easy for the everyday person to understand immediately like how these different like straddle options and things like that that work. Um, so, I, I, and I, so I would argue, I, I guess I just put this in the chat, um, and I, I can't say it will happen, but I do... I would argue that there could be self-regulation. We're not, there are going to be scams. There are going to be ripoffs. would happen in any, any market. But I do think this is the best chance for a financial market to self-regulate based on its design. Yeah, and I, I'd actually follow on from that as well, just to the point I was going to make, is that, yes, look, as, a, as an experienced trader many years ago on trading on exchanges like Life and CME, yes, you quite, and um, those, those exchanges generally uh, self-regulating organizations, they're SROs. So but there was often question marks over how they would, you know, uh, regulating exactly. Uh, many times trades got busted. We discussed that earlier about Nichols trades being busted um, uh, last week. That happened regularly. Um, and if you made a complaint to the exchange, they'd follow it through. Um, but they were under no obligation to publish any of the results or come back to you and give you any feedback. Always very questionable. Um, but, you know, at the same time, uh, exchanges, ETNs would publish their rule books, which was useful. Then all users of that exchange would at least know what the rules are up front. Um, and at least there would be a method for at least challenging if they, it looked like those rules had been compromised. Um, now, the, the, one of the key features of these decentralized networks is complete transparency of information. Everyone, whoever you are, has full visibility of everything that's going on on that network and everything that has happened on that network. Now, that is unique to these markets. Now, it is a wild west, but then that can also hopefully be used to everyone's benefit going forward. Um, because once we've built systems which do meet a happy compromise of, you know, allaying fears that uh, regulators might have in terms of mostly around KYC and AML perhaps, um, who's actually, who are the counterparties to these trades? Because at present, you can join one of these networks, a decentralized exchange, no onboarding process, and you can transact with anyone. You have no idea who they are. That's clearly why regulators are somewhat concerned. But some of these platforms are building modules and components that if you want to reveal your identity to your counterparties, you can. So that's already progress being made. Now, 
essentially the rule book of these decentralized exchanges a is in the code if you have the capacity to go and unpick that code b you know we can go a step beyond that and effectively publish these rule books for the common man to use to understand and to understand there what the risks are what can and can't be done by the code itself um i think matt mentioned code is law earlier that's a, <laughs> i'll take slight exception there in terms of just because you know, just for new people coming to this, terms like smart contracts, saying things like code is law. You know, I think these things have been discussed over time. And, you know, code is code. And this is, I think, you know, when people too put so much emphasis or too much emphasis on these decentralized networks, you know, the rule of law still exists, which is what we're seeing. And that's why we're seeing certain things challenged within the industry, because regulators still have the rule of law behind them. Um, so we can't just dismiss the rule of law and even how, you know, if you're coding anything, however much you think you've thought of every scenario, quite often there's still going to be uh, an element of objectivity when it or subjectivity when it comes to um, some level of dispute. And, and you're never going to do away with that. It's enough, you know, there's always going to be the need for some net mechanism where someone's going to feel aggrieved and want someone to turn to at some point. But again, you know, as long as the industry is aware of what those challenges are and can work towards coming up with solutions, which, as I said, are probably better than what we have now. And just so I don't ramble on too much, but look, I think one, we, you know, we mentioned KYC and AML. It's absolutely ridiculous that today every broker you on board with, every bank you on board with, every exchange you on board with, you've got to send your passport. You send it over email, copy your passport, your proof of address, all of this information, which you shouldn't just be throwing out into the public domain, is ridiculous. And it's so inefficient because every bank, you know, every mortgage application you make, you have to upload the information. You know, why isn't there just one point, one source of this information, which you can give permission to share to the person or with the company you want to? Now, this industry will be, is in the early stages of developing technology, which will vastly improve that. So over time, when the regulators come to the industry saying, well, you can't carry on in business because you're not doing this. You know, the positive outcome of all of this is the industry will turn around and say, actually, we can do exactly that. And we can do it in a way which offers more privacy to the end user than we currently have. And means that the centralized uh, bodies, uh, organizations such as the exchanges, which, you know, they're regulating themselves. They have all this information. Who are they kind of, you know, who are they favoring? with that information, you know, hopefully we can do away with all of that and we do end up with much fairer markets. We will return to the podcast shortly. Just a quick reminder that listeners of the AlphaMind podcast can obtain a discount on the STA's outstanding technical analysis home study course. Visit alpha-mind.net to find out more about this offer. Now back to the podcast. Gentlemen, can I ask you a question? Because there's something which is not, it's not backing me, but it's, it's in my mind. And I think a lot of people are asking that. What is the purpose of DeFi? What, not what problem is it trying to solve? Because I often think that's misleading. What is it trying to be a better version of? In the same way that the mobile phone was a better version of the phone, and then the smartphone was the better version of the mobile phone. Now, it's a very simple analogy, but you know, I don't think the like the iPhone when it came along, was necessarily solving a problem, but it was making what is out there much, much better. And we we, we know, you know, it, it's 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 so much better than just the old 
Nokia phone or even the BlackBerry. So what I've, is, got, um, I've got an answer to that. <laughs> I'll, I'll try anyway. Um, basically, when I was a TV reporter, um, many years ago, I can't even remember what year, maybe it was around about 2008 or something like that, I went and did a TV report with a new innovative firm called Zopa. I don't know if you've heard of them. They're still around. Uh, and they were doing this new crazy thing called peer-to-peer lending that had never been done before legally. And, um, and it was fascinating. I loved their platform. And you could get, you know, a much better yield than you could get in the bank. But obviously there was risk involved because they were facilitating ordinary people lending to other ordinary people. And they had software which obviously worked out the credit risk of each person who was um, borrowing money. And, uh, and, and so you could kind of choose the risk level that you wanted uh, to have. You could get like 5% a year or 7% a year or 9% a year. And actually, as, as far as I know, I mean, because I was expecting there to be tons of loans defaulting, but as it turned out, their software worked pretty well. As I r- recall, they, um, for, for many years, there, there were just not huge amounts of defaults, even during the great financial crash, as far as I can remember. And um, so what DeFi is doing is not dissimilar to that. Um, I don't know. What, what do you think, Matt and Paul? Does it sound similar to that? Matt, I'm happy to jump in, or if you want to go. Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. No, look, I mean, yes, it does. It is, I think that peer, the term peer-to-peer, so person-to-person is a, is a good one. Um, and in essence, what that's doing is cutting out a whole swathe of middlemen. Um, you know, whether rightly or wrongly, I guess time will, you know, give us that answer. But the assumption of people, you know, developing and using these technologies is that there's a lot of middlemen involved in in trade uh, of any of any type for secure trade. Um, if we just take an FX trade, for example, or a securities trade, you know. You, you, you've got a bunch of intermediaries, heavily regulated, heavily capitalized to ensure the safe pre-trade checks, execution and settlement of two assets, or an asset, two assets. Um, and the idea with this technology is that we, we, we can cut out those middlemen. Now, in, in the past, the, the assumption has been that, you know, you bring about a lot of efficiencies if you're able to cut out a bunch of rent seekers. Uh, there's always, a, you know, and there's a lot of rent seekers in the chain of a typical trade and settlement. Now, with these technologies, the idea is that a, a, a large number of those functions, um, essentially, you know, in future, if people do want a you know more compliant KYC version of these. You might still have an on ramp as a broker or a bank that does those KYC checks to let you use part of these networks. Um, but for now, you don't need that permission. As it is, you know, all of those functions of clearing, of broker, of exchange are all wrapped up in, you know, a few lines of possibly quite a few lines of code um, where a person sitting in Japan now and a person sitting in London can effectively agree and execute and settle a trade in a matter of seconds. There's no T plus one, T plus two. There's no, you know batch settlement at the end of each day or in two days time between two different clearing houses or what have you, it all happens virtually in real time, much quicker, much more efficient. Now, look, there's trade-offs in all of this as well, which we'll maybe come on to later. You know, there's, the, there will be a question about, you know, the cost of using these networks is sometimes high, 
But again, that's a known problem and there's you know solutions being worked on. So again, early days, it doesn't mean that will remain a you know stumbling block for in the long term. But you know, in essence, it is that ability to cut out a whole swathe of middlemen to trade assets person to person or company to company. And if you think once that is you know successfully wired and efficiently wired and regulators are happy with how you know new systems that and, and checks and balances that are put in place to you know allay their fears, then you know the idea that this is open and permissionless that a young startup or a multi-billion dollar company can come and plug into and utilize these networks without anyone's permission. You know, when I was a derivative trader, I had to put a minimum of 25K um, capital or collateral down to start trading. I needed to register with the CME and um, had all of these hurdles to jump through. Unless you were able to do that and participate in maybe some market making schemes that they were offered to provide liquidity and you know benefit from those, you know, not every Joe can just come along and do that. With these markets, if I've got $500, $1,000 and I want to allocate that to market making across DeFi markets and generate some revenue and income from that. I don't need any permission to do it. And I only need 500 bucks or a thousand bucks to get going. Um, so that's where it becomes a lot more democratizing and open. Yes, yeah, basically the financial conduct authority's worst nightmare, really. It's, it's, <laughs> it's just freedom for individuals to choose what risks they want to take as opposed to which which risks the regulator thinks it's sensible for individuals to be allowed to take and which ones they think you have to be a professional trader to take. Just to give you a quick example, Binance, the world's um, largest uh, crypto exchange, has uh, mm. folded, uh, folded. They've uh, they've kind of capitulated to the regulators, particularly the British regulator, the FCA, who are putting a lot of pressure on them about KYC AML. Um, in the UK, we have a ban on uh, cryptocurrency derivative trading for retail traders. Only professional traders are allowed to uh, to do it. And so Binance has, has gone along with that and they've put in such strict rules now that I think you have to, I, I, when I looked, you had to have more than £5 million in your trading account in order to qualify to trade derivatives. Otherwise, you're considered not not a big shot enough to be allowed to do it full stop in the, as, as a UK citizen, that is. Uh, people from the rest of the world are still allowed to do it, as far as I can tell. The US has that, never no, had American. access. Yeah. That's true, yeah. American. Uh, well, I'd like to add to that, and I, really good points there, Paul, and I'd maybe tell a story related to that. I think so, yeah, you guys mentioned just uh, less middlemen, cutting out middlemen, having more control over your money. And there's many stories of people losing access to their accounts. I know like crypto founders from Canada, from UK, that have been unable to get a house just because they work in cryptocurrency. They pay their taxes, they do everything, but they're seen as a risk. So it kind of kind of adds to that. But um, I've I've witnessed firsthand when I first got into Bitcoin, uh, web developers in or a graphic designer and a backend developer in Venezuela who were able to escape to Panama and Atlanta, respectively. And uh, you know that was the only financial access they had. Um, because they were able to, you know, travel across borders, not like with gold, literally gold in the backpack, which had been confiscated um, at airport security or, or crossing the border into Colombia. And I think that, um, I mean, those are interesting stories. Not everyone it applies to, but um, as you see in a pretty wild world, it it, it doesn't matter in, in, until it does. And and Paul mentioned KYC. And I think, I guess my issue with KYC is I don't find it very effective. I think there's a lot of stats on banking. They don't really um, actually, they, they lower like maybe like 0.2% 
of like illicit activity. It's, it's an extremely low amount. And what I see all the time on some of these projects, like, uh, like Lemosane is the issue with KYC is usually you have to follow us sanctions. And then it's so, so the, the really talented, um, uh, the Venezuelan web, uh, web developer or the, or the, uh, person that wants to invest a little bit of their savings in Iran, they end up not having access to the protocols. So there are some big trade-offs made by the, or like the accredited investor, which in the U S I think you have to have a couple million dollars to be able to invest. So, um, but let's just assume that the goal of KYC is to prevent illicit activity. It, it ends up having a lot of casualties. So it then becomes a fine line. Is this really decentralized finance? And I don't have the answer there. I just want to show that you know, these are just like in, in outside of this, there's always very tricky decisions that have to have to be made that will really shape the way this whole thing grows. Okay, just just for anyone listening there, I'm just checking with you guys. I, I understand KYC is know your customer. I, I actually had assumed that like traders would would know that, but I, I maybe that's again that's just my lack of awareness. But yeah, know your customer. So I just think a lot of like KYC and ML, just taking a, a selfie with your passport um, and just giving them all your your documentations and whether you're allowed or not to participate. So a lot of these DeFi protocols, they may say on their website, people from like Montreal, people from Quebec, where I used to live are not allowed to participate sometimes because the government does that. People from Iran, Venezuela, North Korea, China, US. Um, so um, they do that because of this. Um, I'm speaking a little bit, uh, this is not my expertise, but basically they don't want to violate these like KYC or AML, which is anti-money laundering rules because they could get in trouble for yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Given these, uh, you know, these these challenges, um, and with DeFi itself, do, do you think there's there's a, another evolution of DeFi that that's yet to happen, sort of like a hybrid version of it that that's got a that, that and what strikes me is that the, the financial markets got their act together when say KYC and the supervisory stuff went, went through the middlemen. So the middlemen were you know part of the you know sort of the radar, and if DeFi is a world where the middleman is kind of not a man, right? It's kind of, there's a whole bunch of bots and code stuff going on. But is, is it a case that for it to sort of just be, just exist in a sort of more sustainable way, does, does it need to evolve from where it is at the moment? Because it does feel like the Wild West still. Well, the US regulators are hovering in a big way. You might have read uh, last week, or maybe you didn't because there's a lot of other news going on at the moment. But uh, last week, uh, Joe Biden signed an executive order uh, to basically send a message to all his regulators. And I didn't realize, I, I knew there were about 10 different financial regulators. But when I saw the list, I think it's even longer than that. It's like so many different bodies. And they're all going to be investigating and writing reports on crypto and DeFi and stuff, uh, and, and also the development of the central bank bank digital currency the digital dollar uh they're going to be writing tons of reports which he wants back in between three to six months and then they can start deciding what kind of regulation to bring in but certainly as far as DeFi is concerned there, there are really tricky areas concerned with as you say mark the lack of uh, human beings in some of these projects and gary gensler uh the the chair of the sec has already kind of scoffed at that saying you know i don't buy this idea that nobody's in charge of some of these things you know there's always a human being there somewhere so words to that effect he's you know they they want to kind of out all the all the people who they think are middlemen um who are just hiding and they want really the the, the fear is that they'll bring in regulations that make these people responsible in ways that they're not really responsible because in some cases they're just a software developer who just came up with an, an idea and wrote the code and then sod it off again 
You know, sometimes these people don't even, they're not even involved after that stage. But if they start thinking that the SEC is going to come and sue them and drag them through the courts just because they wrote a bit of code, then that's going to obviously be a certain, uh, not a moral hazard, a, uh, what do you call it, a chilling effect. It's going to stifle the innovation. And so that's, that's, it's a really delicate balance that needs to be struck by these regulators. And as Paul was saying earlier, they probably don't really understand half of what they're doing anyway with. DeFi and so on. So all we can hope is that the people who write these reports over the next few months start doing some serious research and get a grip on what DeFi is really about before they write out their regulations. Well, actually, you've taken us full circle to exactly why we're here doing this podcast, because, you know, there is um, just a lack of understanding that it's a completely different paradigm. It's, it's not, you know, it's so hard to translate. I think, you know, Matt, tried to introduce the idea of using some metaphors and analogies so that myself, Mark, and and anyone out there who's probably with the exception of Paul and Glenn over 30 would, would understand this. But, you know, it, it reminds me when I go back to when I first started working in the city as a trader, and I, I think I was 24, and my boss came up to me at the bank, the head of trading, and said, Steve, there's these things called swaps which none of us get, but apparently you can make money doing it. <laughs> if you can work out how they work, right, go out and make money. And then, I, you know, I, I, I went overnight, looked at it, called a friend who was a swaps broker, said, meet me in the pub, explain this to me. He was only so happy to because he needed a new client. Um, and boom, the next day I said, yeah, I think I've worked it out. And that was it. And we were away. Um and then, of course, you had to go through all the, you know, the accountants and the risk managers for what there was in those days, which wasn't a lot. Um, and the compliance, which, again, there wasn't much of either, um, would come down and say, what's this you're doing? And you try and explain it to them. And they didn't get it at all, but they'd go away and pretend they did. They'd nod politely. And, you know, and, and often problems, all sorts of problems started from that. But it, it was just that they couldn't get their head around something, which to me was really simple. But being young and... You know, and, and actually having hair in those days, and you know, and I'm afraid Matt, that's coming your way at some point. <laughs> but you know, it, 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 and I see the same thing here going on, and it's almost like it doesn't work fully with metaphors. The problem with every, every metaphor is they're so imperfect. Every analogy is always an imperfect representation that you're trying to give, and the reason you're giving it is because it's usually so hard to make a simple explanation of. And I think, you know, that's what I really see with, uh, with, with but, you know, and, and it's developed its own language, you know, which, you know, when people talk about, you know, for me, I always try to equate it to a currency, which is not really a currency or even an asset, but it's not really an asset either, is it? It, it, it kind of alludes both of those in some way. Yeah, without having to delve too deep into the technicalities of Bitcoin and other blockchain networks, you know, Bitcoin did bring along a concept and an idea which was completely unique and groundbreaking in terms of the way that um, value can be documented, transferred across the world, across these networks. Now, that in its own is a really powerful concept. It's so unique. It is undoubtedly going to remain and embed itself into the internet in the years to come. But, you know, the internet was invented in 1971, I believe, the first version of it. 
So even by 1981, 10 years in, you know, it was only just then developing certain additional protocols which would allow Tim Berners-Lee to eventually invent, invent the web. So we're only 10, 12 years into Bitcoin. You know, I think there's a certain element. I know it's like, well, just trust the guys building it because that's <laughs> you can't trust everyone building it. There's going to be mistakes made along the way. There's going to be successes. There's going to be failures. But the concept of this ability to transfer and record and document a record of uh, value being transferred across the world over the Internet without the needs of a bank's network or another bank's network or a clearinghouse's network, all on a standard network, is very powerful. Um, and I think that idea itself is enough um, to keep everyone captured, especially people building ideas on these networks. Uh, they, they, it will continue to evolve. Um, there's going to be ideas, there's going to be you know, uh, business models that haven't even been thought about yet, completely new, that some kid have come up with in his bedroom as a 16-year-old and be a billionaire by the time he's 21. Um, but, you know, that's the, 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 the most amazing thing about this is the permissionless nature where anyone can come in with an idea and put it out there for people to use, hopefully not with the idea of scamming people, but it, it's a huge like, sand pit of experimentation at the moment. Yeah, I was. I Paul is completely right. It's still very early days, but I feel a bit guilty now because we're near the end of the podcast and we haven't. <laughs> I feel like right at the beginning we should have given you an example of how this thing just just a little pretend example of how it works. So I'm going to do that now to try and just make make it clearer. A typical thing you do in DeFi, a typical transaction might be. Um, I'm, I'm going to simplify it. So <laughs> I'm going to have to simplify it. A person goes in, right? They've got their money. Um, they've got some collateral, basically, some financial collateral. This wouldn't be their house. This would be a cryptocurrency that they own, right? They already own some cryptocurrency of some kind, right? And they want to borrow some money. So they post this cryptocurrency as collateral. And that allows them to then borrow from another human being somewhere in the world who they can't see and, and probably will never know as a human being. But they can borrow some money from that person. And the reason they can borrow that money is in many cases because they've over collateralized. They've they've given more, you know, a lot of money uh, into the pot and then they get less money borrowed while that money that that collateral they've already got just sits there for the duration of the loan. Right. And if they don't pay back the loan, then the collateral gets seized by the by the person that uh, they borrowed from. And all of this happens automatically through the smart contracts that Paul was referring to earlier. Uh, the code that has been written by some random software developer somewhere and he posted it on the net and set up this protocol. And then the protocol just is it's just rules that, that are followed. And automatically, if that person doesn't pay back on time, then automatically the collateral goes to the lender. It's as simple as that. Um, Matt, does that work for you? That description? Yeah, hundred percent. And and so I I I um I think I showed something similar to that to Steve uh, last week. I, I think that uh, in general, a lot of the the systems like the Swift system and uh, they're just old systems, old software, right? That are running like the traditional financial systems. So you, it's it's superior software, uh, you know, built uh, in the modern era that is going to I think eat a large share of the traditional finances lunch, not maybe not everything. And, and I don't want to say that there are like, you know, there are certain things in banking that are right now definitely superior to, to DeFi. 
Uh, I don't want to come across as apologist for DeFi. It does stink. Um, you know, I've been scammed myself and, and uh, a lot of other retail. I'm also a retail user. I mean, I, I work in analytics, but I'm not, I'm not a professional trader. I'm a retail trader. The, the scams are unfortunate. It can cause a lot of, but I think it also happens in, in professional, but, but I, I think that uh, to sum that all up. Yeah. Like I, I think this is, again, we can still get away with saying, Hey, it's early. It's, it's a bit messy, but this, this system is going to be a force uh, for, for years to come. So if I'm, I'm a retail, so I'm a retail trader looking to do crypto, we all we know our audience is is vast for this, but there's some people out there thinking, well, what what do I need to keep an eye out on though? So we've got these these risks that I'm now not not too sure I've you know, really quantified what these mean to me. Um, what do people? What are the signs that something bad might be happening? I mean, how do they know that? Is is it invisible? So they guess look the next day and like everything's gone. Are there any signs? Are there any players they need to avoid? Any things they need to avoid doing to give themselves more protection? Well, the an- anonymity isn't great. You know, that's that's a warning sign in itself. If the person who's set up a project just calls themselves, you know, DeFi boy or whatever, it's uh, crypto king, uh, then it's uh, that that's a warning, <laughs> obviously, because you don't know. I mean, it's I guess. As Paul said, if you can understand the code of the smart contracts, then that helps a hell of a lot. That gives you a certain amount of protection. But, you know, not many people can read uh, that code and understand it well enough. Uh, so I don't know. What what do you look out for, Matt, apart from anonymity? I, I had a list somewhere of things that I check off when I do these things. I should dig it out. But what, what do you look for, Matt? Yeah. So one, if... There are, just to be fair, there are some, I mean, well, Satoshi Nakamoto, who invented Bitcoin, was anonymous, right? Everyone says that. But like there are like the urine, there are a couple protocols that do have anonymous devs that do it for their own safety. But yeah, it's almost like what are some like things that are going, you know, to get this percentage return or whatever that are increased my risk? I'd say one, definitely being anonymous. Two, if the code's been audited. Um, but that's that's no guarantee. But like audits on code. Um, three, the, the, the great thing about these DeFi projects is you can literally, um, like I can't go speak to like the head of Goldman Sachs. It's not the best example, but you know what I mean? But like the, the person running the Vanguard mutual fund, I can't just go online and like DM that person and say, hey, I own $1,000 worth of your money market Asian tiger fund. Uh, how's it going? Like, what are you doing? And I realize there's rules around that. You can you can literally speak to them. You can find them interviewed on podcasts. And so just the same things of human nature. Um, if, if they're not anonymous, find their background. Like if, for example, if, um, uh, you know, just to see their work history, things like that. I, I think getting into the people behind the protocol is number one. Um, and I also think that this is uh, like the DeFi safety thing I mentioned, just like, for example, when you buy food at the grocery store, is it safe to eat? There's There are some pretty good quality control, uh, better in some countries than others. But I think UK is pretty good at that stuff. Like, is this milk safe to drink? There's certain, you know, logos. Not that there's not corruption there. I think that type of stuff will uh, develop because it's not fair to say you have to l- learn how to... Uh, audit smart contracts, which very few people really know how to do uh, in order to participate, right? That's that, that's a huge uh, barrier to to entry. Yeah, well, I guess uh, you talked about the, you know, the, the, the thing about understanding what, if uh, milk was safe to drink. The UK has decided to remove all its um, sell-by dates on milk and you're now told to smell it. So to see what... <laughs> Is that true? Whether, yeah, to see whether uh, it's... Uh, that's a bad example then. Drink. So, <laughs> apply, apply that to crypto. Look, I think one, one smell it. Look, there are tr- one one of the things to me. Look, like like in um, you know in the, the old world, 
Um, trust takes time to build. There's brands which are building trust because they've been around the longest. They've been transparent. They've been open. Even if there's been um, compromises to their code, um, their leadership team is you know very public all the time. And you're going to have these issues. So I think anyone entering this space um, from scratch, you know, really should take some time to follow and to ask questions, maybe join some, um, some, some chat groups, but at least follow the reputable um, uh, media outlets to kind of start educating yourself. What are the, you know, who are the dominant players in this ecosystem? And yes, there might be some tempting opportunities if you're going a little bit further afield or further from center with the known trusted brands, maybe leave that to a later time and just experiment with what, you've kind of discovered are the most trusted brands. For example, we've mentioned Uniswap. Uniswap is a long-established decentralized exchange. No one here can say there is no flaws in their code, which won't be compromised and create risks in the future. But there are legitimate projects. Their um, development teams very open, transparent, etc. So they built their trust over time, just like brands build their trust in other markets as well. So I think that's always the good place to start. Um, an experiment very small. I mean, the good things about these markets is you don't need to kind of throw the kitchen sink at it and uh, remortgage your house to start experimenting. Just start experimenting very small till you understand how they work, how you manage your funds, how you manage your wallets, et cetera. But look, it's a, it's a known, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's well known within the industry. The user experience from any of these things is still relatively complicated and that's something that needs to be addressed over time. Believe me, compared to eight, nine, 10 years ago, advances have definitely been made. Um, but there's more to come. Um, but we'll see that again over time. But it just goes to show how new all of this is that even Uniswap, which Paul mentioned there, as you know, it's one of the kind of granddaddies of DeFi. It was invented at, at the end of eight, 2018, beginning of 2019. And that's like that's mm. like the dawn of DeFi. Okay, there were precursors to DeFi, but that was, you know, that was one of the first big ones. And it's so recent, it's unbelievable. Two two quick things. So sorry, Steve. I think this will really uh, add color. So one is um, I do want to. I, I think we kind of made it seem as if like the majority of money was lost to scams in crypto, but actually, I'd say the majority dollar amount is actually not lost by scam, but well-intentioned founders doing very risky things that are just very smart, and then someone exploited. It. So it wasn't. It was someone else that was anonymously uh, scamming them than the founders themselves. Just so we don't give like a bad. Uh, it, uh, accidental bad taste in the industry. And then two, one of the big trade-offs with decentralization is it, this is much less computing power. It's very slow, not very powerful. Uh, it has to be across many computers. So it's just slow and not nearly as fast as a centralized system like like NASDAQ. So I just want to add that. Thank you. Thank you. I, I guess where I was going was, again, I wanted to say thank you for staying on a bit longer. You all, we, I, I get a feeling we could talk for hours. Um, I, I got one question which I wanted to ask you. And that, that's how do you value crypto? Um, it, it, I suppose it's the ultimate question. You know, you can you can value a, a, a company by its future cash flows. And I know I, I, I'm not talking about short term. Short term is supply and demand. But long term, I think Benjamin Graham's quote, in, in, in the short term, it's everything's a voting machine. In, in the long term, it's a weighing machine. And every uh, com- every company valuation is some estimate of its future cash flow potential. At the same time, you can value a bond based on, you know, the, the, the central bank rate, the cost of funding, the borrowing behind a bond, and maybe the creditworthiness of the issuer. 
So there's a clear structure for val- for valuing something. And then you've got supply and demand as different people estimate those values that move it up and down out of that range. How do you, you know, I mean, is a Bitcoin in a year's time, is it worth 10,000? Is it worth 100,000 or the same for Ethereum? The way I explain it to people who ask me in, uh, you know, conferences and seminars and that kind of thing when I'm speaking, they they always ask that question. Of course, it's such an important question. I wrote a whole a couple of chapters on fundamentals in my book and and at the end of the chapters kind of said but all these fundamental valuation methods are pretty sketchy to be perfectly honest uh they're they're all nice attempts to try and put fundamental valuations on but it's very difficult so the way i explain it is it's kind of like being a dragon in dragon's den Right, we're talking about very early stage tech companies. That's the that well, not they're not always companies, obviously, but it's a metaphor. You know, the metaphor is early stage tech companies. How on earth do you put a value, a future valuation on something that could turn it turn out to be the biggest thing in the world, but at the moment is just a one man band? Um, and that's the case for most cryptocurrencies. Uh, Bitcoin, obviously, a bit different now because it's so huge and it's got so much institutional investment in it. And you could say the same to some degree with Ethereum. But pretty much every other cryptocurrency is a kind of long term bet on a very clever thing having been invented. And hopefully it will go ballistic in the distant future. So it's optionality, really, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And at some point, that optionality becomes a pure... A non-option play; it becomes an asset with a value. Yep. Right. Yeah, that's a good. Yeah. That's a good description. I like that. Yeah. Okay. Brilliant. I think there's a, there's a certain amount of relative value being kind of apportioned. If we take Bitcoin and the the its kind of sales pitch of being the digital version of gold and having many qualities similar to gold, many better, some not quite as good. Um, you know, people are often looking at like the total kind of market valuation of all the gold in the world, um, and you know what percentage of that Bitcoin's eaten into gold. Um, do they live side by side in the future? Does one assert the other, or does Bitcoin assert gold? No one knows. But I think you you should look at those relative values between those two, and then with everything else, Ethereum was the first in the market leader for the smart contracting programmable networks which they do have their own currency like bitcoin but both the currencies there to perform these other additional functions uh like building DeFi platforms then ethereum took the lead it's not necessarily the best technology um, but it got the lead it got the network effect it really captured a broad number a wide number of developers to build systems on it so it got its lead it's kind of maintaining its foothold now everything else that people might have heard of which are basically trying to be ethereum competitors such as maybe cardano tezos avalanche solana um all these things i think you look at in relative terms to ethereum so you know what market share are they starting to obtain over ethereum um if it looks like they're being widely adopted so you've got to look at how they're being used what's being built on them how they're being adopted and whether that means they have the potential to assert Ethereum. I think that's the simplest way to look at uh, some of the better-known tokens and networks. It's it's incredibly interesting. I, I know that uh, yeah, back in the, the old days of normal markets, let's guess call them, you'd normally be reading a report about what happened yesterday and the reason why, is, you know, why it went up, why it went down, the central bank and flows and whatnot. That's what I did. You know, that was my job to write that. <laughs> there you go. And I, I think, you know, to 
you know, is it possible to write a market report about what's happened in, in, in Ethereum today? You know, what? why did it go up? Why did it go down? Those types of things. Yeah, but usually we were making that stuff up anyway, we remember. Like, <laughs> again, I wrote about that. Why is the career, right? The inflation went down. More buyers than sellers. Yeah, I mean, and that's about the only answer you've got, right? <laughs> as well, it's kind of the way it went 15% later. Um, I, I guess a lot of this is, you know, you te- teach your 13-year-old how to code and you're a billionaire by tea time type thing is something that, uh, you know, strikes me. It's, it's the, the, the younger, the people that were evolving into this space as youngsters, you know, this is, um, it become, it's common, common currency. The narrative is in their world. Yeah, this, let's see what they're doing. I'd love to see what, you know, what the teenagers think about this. They're treating this as sort of just a, a game, you know, and they're getting involved in it. And my teenage, or teenage is 21 now, but it feels like a teenager. Yeah, you know, he, he comes with, yeah, I've got this portfolio of all this, all this stuff. I think, Jesus, when did you get that? Well, my, my buddies at university have got it. We've got this club. We talk about these things. We, yeah, that one looks like it's gone too far. We sell out of that. We buy this. And they're doing it as kind of just this normality. Um, yeah. And, of course, it's slightly scary, of course, the, the, the core level. It is kind of a bit, you know, finger in the air supervision and finger in the air regulation. And I guess, you know, with the work that, that Biden's instructed the regulators in the US to do, there may be some form and shape what will come into the market. And by the sound of it, it's probably necessary to some extent just to protect people from the fact that you know, it can go seriously wrong pretty quickly and because bad people are able to um get into the system but you know, i think we're very grateful for the depth of conversation we, we've had today and uh certainly for you taking such such time uh, and, and and sharing your views on it i, I think we're, we're still i think we're still overall scratching the surface of this this pond which has still got a very thin layer of ice on that we're looking to maneuver without falling in and you know getting hypochondria and that's the end of it so and i think we're almost certainly going to be having you back and i think it might be worth getting someone like the cme on you know some of the people the people that are at the exchange side and say okay well what are you guys doing what do you think about this you know what what are your challenges and what's the negative game changer that's coming along that we should be aware of and what's the positive game changer that could actually you know sort some of these things out and some of these challenges so yeah i think that's a nice way for summing up it's still still very much work in progress i think for the whole industry um but once again we're very grateful for your time and for bringing this to life for us thank you thank you for listening today we do hope you enjoyed this week's episode if you did we would be delighted if you could leave a nice rating and a friendly review on whichever podcast service you use also be sure to subscribe so as not to miss future episodes Thank you to our podcast sponsor, the Society of Technical Analysts. As a reminder, you can check out how to obtain a discount on their outstanding technical analysis home study course at our website, alpha-mind.net. The Alpha Mind podcast is co-hosted by me, Stephen Goldstein, and Mark Randall, and brought to you by the Alpha Mind Project Limited. You can learn more about us and the trader performance coaching and executive coaching and leadership coaching programs and services we offer and other performance development services, which we offer to professional trading businesses and individuals in the professional and retail trading space at our website, alpha-mind.net. 
We hope you enjoyed this week. Thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed this week's episode, do go back through our back catalogue and check out the many wonderful interviews we have with wonderful people from the financial markets. Thank you and best of luck going forward.